So I'll say that again. Jesus' authority is derived from his Father, and that authority demands our obedience. And I've divided the text into three points. The first being verses 18 through 23, honor the Son and the Father. The second point being verses 24, the one who hears and believes has life. And lastly, the third point being verses 25 through 29, the Son will raise the dead. So let us begin with point one. Honor the Son and the Father. So we read in verses 18 through 23, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father who sent him. So last week, we looked, asked the question, did Jesus break the Sabbath law as the Jews claimed as they began persecuting Jesus in verse 16? And now we see clearly stated in verse 18. We saw that Jesus answered this question by stating, my father is working until now and I am working. This makes the point that Jesus, as God's son, is Lord of the Sabbath. As we read in Mark 2, chapter 20, or verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And we also discussed how for Jesus to labor for salvation does not violate the Sabbath, rather it fulfills it. Jesus points out while God rested from creation, his work of redemption has gone on in this world. Thus it is worldly work that is to cease on the Lord's day, not the work of Christ's kingdom. The Jews also understood that when Jesus stated that my father is working until now and I am working, that he was referring to God, calling him his father. And the watchword for Judaism is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The well-known Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, for anyone to claim deity for themselves would have been a great act of blasphemy. However, Jesus explains that his claim to be God, the Father's Son, does not threaten the oneness of God because he is unified with the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. One theologian comments that there may be no other passage that delves so deeply into the inner relationship between the Heavenly Father and the Son. Jesus' remarks are well organized. He works out the unity of the relationship with his Father. So there is unity between the Father and the Son because of the Son's perfect obedience to the Father. The Son, though co-eternal and co-divine, is functionally subordinate to the Father, and this is why Jesus could say that he delighted to do God's will. The Son wills only what the Father wills. And this should be encouraging to us, 
since it assures us that there is no divided purpose within the Godhead. God the Father does not reject Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins, since Jesus' atoning work was the Father's will. If Christ's will was not in union with the Father's, then the Jews would have been right to accuse him of acting as a rival to God. But Jesus insists that his will and the Father's are in perfect accord. As Pastor Matt Carter explains, Jesus is making a very clear statement of deity and authority by revealing his ability to do works only God can do. He has the authority to give a person life, as we see in verse 21. And he has the authority to judge men, we see in verse 22. These two characteristics are unique to God. If Jesus has the authority to do them, then he must be God. Maybe someone else could heal a person, but Jesus will do far greater works. He will raise the dead to life. He himself will rise from the dead. And when he does so, those who oppose him will marvel, as we see in verse 20. Jesus is saying, you saw me heal a lame man, but explained it away. He's got no authority over us. What are you going to say when I raise someone from the dead? How will you explain that one? How will you avoid the clear conclusion that I am God and you must obey me? Because Jesus' authority is derived from his Father, and that authority demands our obedience. So let us halt here for a moment, or to take an aside, looking at an essential doctrine. So during our youth group lessons, whenever we see an essential doctrine being referenced in our text that we're looking at, we'll stop and define it, and we'll look at its history from the essential truths for the Christian faith by R.C. Sproul. So our essential doctrine that we've come across this morning is that of the deity of Christ. So let us look at it briefly. Faith in the deity of Christ is necessary to being a Christian. It is an essential part of the New Testament gospel of Christ, yet in every century the church has been forced to deal with people who claim to be Christians while denying or distorting the deity of Christ. So at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, the church in opposition to the Arian heresy, declared that Jesus is begotten, not made, and that his divine nature is of the same essence with the Father. And this affirmation declared that the second person of the Trinity is one in essence with God the Father. That is, the being of Christ is the being of God. He is not merely similar to deity, he is deity. So the confession of deity of Christ is drawn from the manifold witness of the New Testament. As the word of God incarnate or in the flesh, Christ is revealed as being not only pre-existent to creation, but eternal. As Dave read in our scripture reading earlier, this is said to be in the, he is said to be in the beginning with God and also that he is God, John 1, 1 through 3. That, it, that he is with God demands a personal distinction within the Godhead, and that he is God demands inclusion in the Godhead. Elsewhere in the New Testament ascribes terms and titles to Jesus that are clearly of deity. God bestows the preeminent divine title of Lord upon him. And as the Son of Man, Jesus claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath and to have authority to forgive sins. He is called the Lord of glory and willingly receives worship 
as when we see Thomas confess, my Lord and my God, later in John 20, verse 28. Paul declares that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ bodily and that Jesus is higher than angels, a theme that's reiterated in the book of Hebrews. To worship an angel or any other creature, no matter how exalted, is to violate the biblical prohibition against idolatry. The I am statements of John's gospel also bear witness to the identification of Christ's deity. In the 5th century, the Council of Chalcedon, A.D. 451, affirmed that Jesus was truly man and truly God, without mixture, confusion, separation, or division. Okay, now after our brief halt, we can saddle up and get back on the move again. So Jesus in verse 23 states that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We honor the Father when we honor the Son, Jesus Christ. And this reminds us that our worship should always be Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, and if we want it to be God-glorifying and Spirit-empowered worship. God's word is crystal clear in that any system of worship that does not honor Jesus Christ as the true God is a satanic lie. Pastor Carter again warns us that one of, our cur- one of the current ways that Satan is trying to attack the deity of Jesus Christ is through the religion of tolerance. There's a loud cry for tolerance in our society, but it's not really tolerance that's wanted. Because true tolerance says all people have the right to choose what to believe. And as Christians, we gladly support this type of tolerance. We don't want to force or coerce someone to become a Christian. We know doing so is impossible anyway. It's a decision of the heart. And this is why Christians have always been on the front lines in the fight for religious liberty. We believe that people should have the right to believe whatever they choose, even if they choose to believe something that is ridiculous. For example, they could set up a religion that worships a toaster as God. The religion of tolerance has completely, a completely different ag- agenda. It says that we must affirm all religions are equally true. That's not tolerance. That's an entirely new religion. Satan pushes the religion of tolerance because it undermines the worship of Jesus as the one true God. Though we believe every person has the right to believe whatever he or she wants, we also believe that only one thing can be true. Only the true God is worthy of worship, and the only way to worship him is through his son, Jesus, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now let us look at our second point. The one who hears and believes has life. So we read in verse 24, Jesus saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Pastor Kent Hughes tells a story years ago about the great G.P. Campbell Morgan, who was preaching in Tennessee. During the sermon, he stated, By no means can every Christian remember the time when he was born again. At the end of the sermon, someone challenged his statement, and Morgan turned to him and asked the man, Are you alive? The man said, Why, of course I am. Morgan said, Do you remember when you were born? The man said, No, but I know I'm living. Morgan replied, Exactly. 
Some Christians may not remember the moment of their new birth, but they are spiritually alive and know it. And that's what counts. You can know that you have eternal life. When the spiritually dead hear the voice of Christ, they enter into that relationship of spiritual life. The new birth is a great mystery, but the process is very simple. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. The process is simply hear and believe. And what is this word that we must hear and believe? Let me share the good news of the gospel with you now. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. God is the creator of all things and is holy and righteous. Thus, he cannot ignore or tolerate sin. And we are accountable to God. He has the right to tell us how to live. And humankind, we rebelled against God. As we read in Romans 3, 9 through 12, that all are under sin. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. So what is sin? Sin is the rejection of God himself and his right to exercise authority over those whom he gives life. Once you understand sin this way, you begin to under understand why the wages of sin is death. The Bible teaches that the final destiny for unbelieving sinners is an, an eternal act of punishment in a place called hell. But we read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, came and lived a perfect life of righteousness without sin. He willingly went to the cross in our place to take the punishment and bear the wrath of God that we rightly deserve. He died and rose on the third day, conquering sin and death. As we read in Acts 1, verse 3, he presented himself alive, to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And he has now ascended to heaven to be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So what does God expect us to do with this information that Jesus died in our place so we can be saved from God's righteous wrath against our sin? He expects us to respond with repentance and faith. Repentance means to turn away from our rebellion against God. Faith is relying upon and trusting in Christ's completed work upon the cross for our salvation. So as we also read in Romans 10, 9 through 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The only way to truly honor God is to embrace the gift of mercy and forgiveness that Jesus secured for you on the cross. And I truly hope that all those who hear this good news will repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ this very day. 
If you would like to know more about the gospel or you have any questions about how to profess your faith in Jesus Christ, please do not hesitate to find me or any of our other elders, Pastor Brian and Pastor Jay. And we would love to talk with you more about the gospel after the service. And that brings us to our final point. The Son will raise the dead. In verse 25 through 29, we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Verse 27 contains one final reminder of Jesus' authority. Jesus describes himself with the title, Son of Man. This title is taken from Daniel chapter 7. And in that chapter, Daniel is experiencing a vision from God that reveals God's sovereignty over all nations and kingdoms of this world. In verses 9 through 14, he describes a scene from God's throne room. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Then picking up at the end of verse 10, the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked, then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. One theologian helpfully explains, Jesus is the Son of Man. He's been given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. He is to be served by all peoples, nations, and languages. And this dominion is everlasting and shall never be destroyed. So the story of the gospel is that the king has come. Will his subjects obey? The most pressing question this text poses to us is this. Will we submit to the authority of Jesus Christ? Will we seek to bring every area of our lives under his control? Because Jesus' authority is derived from his Father, and that authority demands our obedience. We also read of the judgment before the great white throne in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened, 
which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in this book, in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea had gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So some additional help in understanding this coming day of judgment is found in the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, the New City Catechism, and the Baptist, Baptist Faith and Message. So as a reminder, these are helpful teaching aids which sit under the authority of Scripture. So the chapter 32 of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith describes the things of the last judgment in three points. First, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall be appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Second, the end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy and the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice and the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive the fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards in the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, they shall be cast into everlasting torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And third, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. So he will have the day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come. And we may ever be prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. And the New City Catechism that we also often use with our youth group states in question number 28. What happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith? Answer, at the day of judgment, they will receive the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them. They will be cast out from the favorable presence of God into hell to be justly and grievously punished forever. And lastly, our statement of faith here at Friendship Baptist Church, the Baptist Faith and Message of the Southern Baptist Convention, Article 10, is titled, Last Things. And it states, God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. And, his, and according to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment, and the righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies 
will receive the reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. As we read in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So as Christians, our confession is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we have life in his name. And our calling is to submit to his lordship in every area of our lives because we do indeed answer to a higher authority. So in closing, I'd like to also share that my father has been a faithful follower of Christ my entire life. The Lord used him to bring me to a saving faith in the redeeming work of King Jesus and now we're both serving in the Lord's army. And I pray that you'll join up too, if you haven't already. And let us remember that Jesus' authority is derived from his Father, and that authority demands our obedience. So in closing, let us pray an old Puritan prayer titled, The Servant in Battle. O oh Lord, we bless you that the issue of the battle between yourself and Satan has never been uncertain and will end in victory. Calvary broke the dragon's head, and we contend with a vanquished foe, who with all his subtlety and strength has already been overcome. When we feel the serpent at our heel, may we remember him whose heel was bruised, but who, when bruised, broke the devil's head. Our souls with inward joy praises the mighty conqueror. Heal us of any wounds received in the great conflict, if we have gathered defilement, if our faith has suffered damage, if our hope is less than bright, if our love is not fervent, if some creature comfort occupies our heart, if our souls sink under the pressure of the fight, O oh Lord, whose every promise is healing balm, every touch life, draw near to your weary warriors, refresh us that we may rise again to wage the battle and never tire until our enemy is trodden down. Give us such fellowship with you that we may defy Satan, unbelief, the flesh, the world, with delight that comes not from a creature in which a creature cannot spoil. Give us a drink of the eternal fountains that lie in your immutable, everlasting love and decree. Then shall our hands never weaken, our feet never stumble, our sword never rest, our shield never rust, our helmet never shatter, and our breastplate never fall, as our strength rests in the power of your might. It's in King Jesus' almighty name that we pray, and God's people all said, Amen. Friends, in Jesus, we have abundant life now, and we have eternal life with him forever. Would you stand and celebrate that?